Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. The U.S. National Security Agency has launched some 1,000 cyber attacks on China's Northwestern Polytechnical University, or MPU. This is according to an investigation report released early September by China's National Computer Virus Emergency Response Center and the cybersecurity company 360. The report lists a clear and complete chain of evidence which calls out an NSA-affiliated office as the perpetrator perpetrator of the attacks. The Office of Tailored Access Operation, or TAO, has carried out over 10,000 malicious attacks against Chinese targets in recent years, according to the report. And 140 gigabytes of high-value data has been stolen from the MPU. It's been a week since China demanded an explanation from the United States, but so far there is no response. What are the purposes of these attacks? What does the investigation tell us about the scale of U.S. cyber espionage against China and possibly beyond, and why has China warned of a jungle world in global cyberspace? I'm pleased to be joined from New York by David Auerbach, a former software engineer with Microsoft and Google and author of Bitwise, A Life in Code, a book about computer languages and codes, and from Zhuhai, southern China's Guangdong province by Professor Zhang Fan, associate professor at Beijing Normal University. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. So, the investigation report points directly to TAO, as I mentioned, affiliated with the NSA. The report says the TAO used some 40 specialized cyber weapons, consistently cyber attacked the university and stole core technical data. For instance, the attacks and data theft against China involved 13 personnel in the United States, more than 60 contracts and some 170 digital documents with the U.S. telecom operators. The NSA has also been found to have long carried out indiscriminate audio surveillance against Chinese cell phone users, illegally stowed text messages, and conducted wireless positioning of these people. Professor Zhang, what do these numbers tell you, and why MPU in particular? This number just says um, if the NSA's surveillance into China, the hacking, is really a widespread thing. I mean. As far back as 2009, Edward Snowden already told South China Morning Post that uh, uh, there's a widespread NSA hacking into China and Hong Kong. And later on, uh, there's all sorts of reporting coming out as well. In particular for this one, the, the reason why they want to hack into that particular university is because it's um, engaged in something called hyper, in my opinion, the most important thing they're looking for is this hypersonic technology. Just before the, uh, the hacking, that university tested an engine that's a combination of something called a ramjet and a scramjet, and as well as a, a rocket engine. What it does is it can fly at up to four times the speed of sound using ramjet and up to seven, seven times using the scramjet and fly all the way out of the atmosphere uh, using the rocket engine. Um, so that's that capability will be very useful for something called space planes. It's like an airplane, but it can fly outside of the atmosphere and arrive anywhere on Earth within an hour. And this kind of technology will be very useful for the U.S. because their military has this doctrine uh, called uh, prompt global strike, where for which they, they want to strike anywhere in the world within an hour. And given how 
problematic their current hypersonic weapons program is going, um, you can't imagine why there is motive to go after that university, uh, mm. go after that tech. Mm. Mr. Auerbach, how do you look at the Chinese report and the information uh, that the, the U.S. carries out massive espionage operations around the world, um, which is really not surprising, but what has caught your attention about these attacks and theft against MPU as outlined in this report? To echo uh, our other guests, that, that some, of, some, of, some of this was out there, and I think in the West, at least, the reaction has been something of... Um, a lack of surprise and sort of the the understanding that in fact these sorts of activities were already at least unofficially acknowledged to be the sorts of activities taking place so the question in my mind is what we're learning from um, the sort of war of words that is occurring and what impact this may have on diplomacy and the public images of the two countries and perhaps why it is that, that uh, what actions um, the United States may have taken that uh, might have uh, caused um, uh, China to be interested in, in, in raising awareness of this right now, uh, in particular um, the arrests of certain Chinese nationals and the attempts to restrict Huawei's uh, global activities. Unfortunately, at, at this at this point, those those links are somewhat speculative. But it does seem that the overall temperature is heating up, and that this is one more uh, indication of that. What do you think of uh, what Professor Zhang just talked about? The U.S. special interest in that hypersonic research that's been carried out at the MPU. From, that yeah. I unfortunately that is not unfortunately my area. It being more military, I'm uh, my understanding is more in the realm of the technological side. So I'm certain that um, the United States certainly has an interest in a wide variety of Chinese activities. Um, I cannot speak to that particular okay. uh, research. Other than that, this university would certainly be um, a likely a likely target for this kind of uh, espionage work. Professor Zhang, the MPU was hacked by 41 types of weapons and infiltrated with over a thousand attack links, according to the report. So you have uh, particularly uh, mentioned that uh, the U.S. Uh, is particularly interested in this university. Um, still, is it is it usual for the United States to try to steal this kind of technology from other countries which uh, is not as developed um, overall as the United States or, you know, in terms of weapon systems? What does that tell us about possibly the kind of anxiety the United States is having over, uh, which, over the level of development China has, has achieved on its own? Um, so this is something pretty new, I would say, in particular vis-a-vis -vis China. I mean, in the past, I mean, there are other countries that have more advanced technologies than the U.S. At the birth uh, of, of the United States, I mean, Britain had a lot more advanced technology. So the, the father of industry in the U.S., Sam Slater, is actually uh, called a traitor in, in the U.K. because he stole the technology um, from the U.K. Um, but for, in China's case, in the past, it's, it's lagging technology. In particular, the, the the, the hypersonic technology is a little different. It, it's, it's, it's completely new, so everybody's on the same starting point. So, so that has a 
that gave China a chance to temporarily at least um, sort of pull ahead a little. Um, so, so the U.S. is is, is in a in a, in a awkward position where it is trying to, well, in your words, steal technology, uh, but at the same time has to justify its its its, its superior already sort of complex in a way. Um, so, so, so it will be quite interesting to see the mental gymnastics going on. If you if you go by the international forums, then it's quite interesting there. For example, the, the US tech companies are also copying Chinese tech companies' payment technology in short format videos and stuff like that. But at the same time, they're, they're being condescending and, uh, you know, uh, a little racist while they're doing that. So, so that's, a, that's kind of a very interesting psychological thing going on there. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly something new and uh, probably see more of in, in the future. Wang Lei, who is a coordinator for cyber affairs of China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, responded to the issue on September the 6th. Let's take a listen to this. The U.S., by taking arbitrary and one-ton actions in cyberspace, did not comply with any international rules and completely walked away from the China-U.S. cybersecurity agreement reached in 2015. The existing consensus between China and the U.S. in cyberspace has changed radically. If the U.S. insists on U.S. exceptionalism or U.S. first and refuses to take reasonable actions nor abide by any international rules, cyberspace may eventually turn into a jungle world. This is not in line with the common interest of the international community. Mr. Auerbach, how do you look at the jungle world warning that China is issuing? And uh, uh, does the United States follow any rules in cyberspace? Should there be some kind of rules established in cyberspace governance? I guess from my perspective, we're already there that uh, certainly one can't go more than uh, you know a, a couple of days without hearing of some sort of attack from some often state-sponsored agency on um, on some enemy and um, the history of such attacks goes back a ways so it's hard for me to look back and see some uh, much in the way of detente even before now uh, but rather um, uh, but rather I think an escalation of uh, of wanting to raise that perception uh, in the world and make people more aware of what has been going on. And uh, the reasons for that, again, may be related to, to greater political or economic interests on the part of either country. The report also found that in order to carry out these attacks and thefts against China, the U.S. has used 54 so-called jumpers or proxy servers distributed in 17 countries, mostly surrounding China, such as uh, Japan and the Republic of Korea. Uh, Wang Lei has described these actions as muddying the waters and fishing for arbitrage. So, Professor Zhang, uh, how do you look at uh, how this, this works and what's the implication for these countries and what's the implication for China in terms of a cybersecurity environment? Uh, first of all, um, I, I want to clarify: they're not necessarily complicit in this action. They're um, they're being, being hacked first. Okay. Right, right. Their servers being hacked first, and, and then the, uh, the, the their computers are being used without their knowledge. Um, so it is quite common knowledge that the U.S. also spies on, on its allies. Um, for example, um, you know the the, the famous uh, problem with Germany, um, and also um, you know the Swiss. Uh, the, the Swiss company called the Crypto AG, which is the CIA front that had been selling 
um, defective um, encryptions to um, to a lot of governments, 120 governments. Um, so that obviously include their own their own allies. Um, so the the U.S. by by implicating by involving them um, in this kind of uh, attacks that, that really. It's not, first of all, unnecessary. They got found out in the end anyways. And also um, they're trying to sort of divert China's uh, possible retaliation against these countries. That's not really what allies should be doing. So that's that's just not really mm. finally, something out there. Yeah, finally, David, I want to ask you this. Every time we talk about this, there is a sense of helplessness because as I said, it's common knowledge that the U.S. does this, probably other countries as well, and that the U.S. is, tr the, 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 the NSA has been, has long carried out indiscriminate audio surveillance against Chinese cell phone users, illegally stole out text messages and conduct a wireless positioning of, can't, do we just have to accept that? Um, I think it is really up to the the security apparatuses of any given state as well as the political apparatuses as to what they want to negotiate. Certainly, intelligence agencies are historically aggressive, but I would have to assume that China has been aware of most of these activities long before now. And um, I have to assume they've been taking some steps against them. So I think that question should probably be, direct, be, be directed at the state um, because from my perspective, um, the efforts are certainly going to continue that that status quo has been in place uh, arguably for, for decades. So um, what comes of it as far as counter espionage tactics, um, I think there's no shortage. I think there's no shortage of potential there, but I can't speak to what is actually being developed. But certainly, in terms of the efforts being made, yes, I think that that, that is that that status quo will continue on on all sides. Thank you so much, David Auerbach, joining us from the United States, and Zhang Fan joining us from Southern China. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea declares itself a nuclear weapons state with the right to launch preemptive strikes. What does it mean, and what prompted this move? Stay with us. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea has passed a new law calling for automatic nuclear launches if the country is judged to be threatened. DPRK's leader Kim Jong-un said the law made its nuclear status irreversible. The legislation enshrines DPRK's right to use preemptive nuclear strikes to protect itself. What exactly does it mean and what has prompted the DPRK to take this move? 
It obviously makes resolving the Korean Peninsula nuclear issue more challenging, but who holds the key? I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Rong Ying, Vice President of the China Institute of International Studies, and from Washington, D.C. by Jenny Town, Senior Fellow at uh, Stimson Center, a policy and research organization focused on international security issues. She's also director of its uh, 38th, 38 North program, which provides researches and analysis of events in and around the DPRK. So welcome to both of you. You. Ms. Tao, let me go to you first. The new law is replacing a previous law passed in 2013. And according to the country's news agency, KCNA, the official news agency, in case the command and control system over the state nuclear forces is placed in danger owing to an attack by hostile forces, a nuclear strike shall be launched automatically and immediately to destroy the hostile forces. What are the most significant changes compared to 2013? Well, this new law, first of all, really does um, pose the nuclear program in a much more mature manner. Uh, the 2013 law still had a lot of language that was really meant to justify the nuclear program. Um, that is not here in, in this law. This is much more talking about actual doctrine, talking about command and control, which is solely in Kim Jong-un's hands apparently advised by um, some members of the State Affairs Commission and with the new clause that you just mentioned of automatic launch in case he or that commission is put into jeopardy uh, due to an attack. Um, we also see a number of different conditions under which they would consider preemptive use as well, um, which really brings a lot of uncertainty to the situation, especially about North Korea's ability to get actual um, credible intelligence and what that threshold will be for considering uh, what would be a, you know, an imminent attack. Mm. So there's a lot here to chew on um, and a lot to be concerned of, although they did say in the law itself that, you know, their goal is really to avoid war um, and that nuclear use would still be a, a last choice. Mr. Mm -hmm. um, Rong, the adoption of laws and regulations related to the national nuclear Force policy is a remarkable event as our as it's our declaration that we legally acquired war deterrence as a means of national defense. That's uh, uh, what uh, Kim Jong-un said during a speech to the uh, Supreme People's Assembly on September. What does he mean? Have the conditions changed dramatically uh, under the, um, the new law? Well, it is true. I think if we, we compared the law in 2013, I think this law, the new law, goes further in finding and the justification and the circumstances where uh, North Korea, DPRK, would use uh, nuclear, uh, would develop and use nuclear weapons for self-defense. And it, and it is also true that if you look at the circumstances, look at the change uh, the conditions five conditions uh, in which uh, nuclear sort of uh, weapons will be used for uh, deter or repel invasions or, or, or attacks uh, by nuclear states or nu non-nuclear states in certain circumstances is very much in a way again a continuation of uh, the argument that is meant for self-defense and it is also true i think the threshold of using nuclear weapons from North Korea's perspective now it's becoming vague and lower and also I think more uncertain. And the, the last point I would make is that it also the new, new law makes the point that 
North Korea wanted to show, wanted to make case that it is a responsible, self-claimed nuclear state. So if you look at the new law, the first few paragraphs very much focus on the sort of the, the, the North Korea's intention to oppose any forms of war, to prevent the miscalculations, our misuse of nuclear wars, and also the question of nuclear non-proliferation. And I think it, all in all, it's a direct response to the recent development uh, by South Korea, which is uh, the new government. And also, uh, 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 on the one hand, it has expressed some overtones for engagement and dialogue, but also it takes some steps on the, uh, on the other hand, on military uh, side for them to kill chain strategy that would target uh, the uh, uh, nuclear facilities and even the command control centers. And last but not least, I think the recent development beyond the region where the United States and its allies are very much focusing on developing the other uh, uh, strategic uh, sort of uh, weapon or capability, which makes North Korea feel more vulnerable, more threatened. Right. Um, Jenny, uh, let me go to you. In August, as Mr. Rong mentioned, the United States joined the Republic of Korea in the largest military drills in recent years, potentially targeting the DPRK. The drills, uh, renamed Wulchi Freedom Shield, was the first in four years. Now, some Western media claim these drills were necessary because of China's heightened military activities over Taiwan and uh, DPRK's weapons test. Are these the real reasons? Do you see the new law as a reaction to the these drills and possibly other signals that have been sent from uh, South Korea and Washington. Certainly the, the resumption of the, the U.S. ROC joint military exercises is a reflection of the broader geopolitical situation and the idea that the, the region itself is getting more dangerous. Um, there is an arms race going on in, in East Asia right now. We are not we did not make progress on denuclearization of North Korea, even though we had the high-level symmetry. And the reality is, is that the U.S. and South Korea have a very complicated, complex structure um, that does need to be exercised, especially in, you know, to be able to be ready to have close coordination and cohesion, as there's a lot of moving parts with these combined forces um, in the case of conflict. Uh, so I think there there are actual military reasons why that that really underlie um, some of the exercises as they've gone on. Uh, they've been mainly um, tabletop exercises in the past few years to allow for the diplomatic process to move forward. But since diplomacy is not ongoing and the situation is getting worse, um, certainly there there are reasons to exercise. Um, as Mr. Rong said, there, there's also South Korea has been talking a lot about kill chain um, and the use of preemption, the doctrine of preemption under new President Yoon. Um, and I do think the timing of what we're seeing right now with North Korea, with this new law coming out and with the real emphasis also on preemption and also on consequences of targeting the government is a response to um, the rhetoric that has come out of South Korea no. this year. Now, the United States has said that since the beginning of the Biden administration that its policy regarding the DPRK remains unchanged, that it has no hostile intent toward the country and it continues to seek diplomacy and is prepared to meet without preconditions. But has the U.S. policy on the DPRK really remained unchanged? I mean, can these words be matched with actions? What is really in the United States' interest to have 
to see the situation being resolved or to keep the status quo, meaning to keep the water boiling? Well, you know, I don't think the U.S. Uh, policy has changed. <laughs> it really is, you know, the they've stated there's no hostile intention, but certainly they are still committed to the defense of South Korea um, and the defense of the United States as well if, if threats are posed to it. Um, they've been open to dialogue. The North Koreans have been unresponsive. Um, but the U.S. is also not really offering much as to, you know, a compelling reason for the North Koreans to come to dialogue, especially when the political situation and the larger strategic situation is getting worse. And so I think, you know, while the U.S. policy hasn't really changed, South Korea's policies has. Um, and because of that, it does create tensions in the region. It creates greater tensions in the relationships, both inter-Korean and U.S. DPRK. The failure of the Hanoi summit and the U.S. DPRK diplomatic processes before are going to be very hard mm. to overcome, and especially while the political situation continues mm. to go in the wrong direction. Mr. Rong, yeah, China's permanent representative to the U.N., Mr. Zhang Jun, has said that uh, the peninsula situation has developed to what it is today primarily due to the flip-flop of U.S. policies, its failure to uphold the results of previous dialogues, and its disregard for the reasonable concerns of the DPRK. So maybe verbally the United States says or the Biden administration says it hasn't changed its DPRK policy, but it did right, restart the military drills, which uh, the largest in and the first in four years, uh, different from under the, the, the Trump administration. So has, is it really in the Biden administration's interest to see the issue being resolved, being worked on? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that it is really the key to the current possible sort of a round of a new tension out of the recent developments. And the United States, the Biden administration did when it took over, uh, uh, that had a policy review, came up with a conclusion that it would adopt a kind of collaborated and practical approach to the, to the issues. Unfortunately, I think for a lot of uh, uh, observers and, and uh, analyst, I think this is no different from the strategic patience of uh, the Obama administration. And more importantly, from DPRK's perspective, I think in the wake of the summit diplomacy, I think the previous administration, the Trump administration, uh, DPRK has made some uh, sort of made, take, uh, taken some steps, concrete steps, and also pledges uh, on the question of denuclearization, but that's never been, uh, from the North Korean perspective, been reciprocated. Okay. So the overturns are there. All Unfortunately, right. the Biden administration didn't come okay. up with concrete things. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to Mr. Rong and uh, Ms. Jenny Town joining us for this discussion. By the way, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, spokesman has said China will bear in mind the larger interest of upholding peace and stability on the peninsula and continue to play a positive role in promoting the political settlement of the issue. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lushin, coming to you from Beijing. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lushin in Beijing. You've got the point.